0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. applied to the Crozier Theology Seminary in 1948, he described his feeling of an inescapable urge to serve society while on a Simsbury tobacco farm four years earlier. At 15 years old, he worked on the farm through a World War II era program at Morehouse College. He would write home to his parents about the relatively desegregated experience in Connecticut. He returned for another summer, three years later, just before writing that application. Dr. King was one of many people who came to Connecticut to work on the highly skilled seasonal jobs in shade uh, tobacco fields. The crop is often used for the binders and wrappers of premium cigars, growing well in the Connecticut River Valley's short and hot summers. A team at Eastern Connecticut State University is compiling a kind of oral history of this industry. They talk about its influence on diversity, where we live, as well as the civil rights movement. The docu-series is called Stepping Into the Shade. Do you have links to this living history in Connecticut? We wanna hear from you. Give us a call at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first is June Archer. He's the host and producer of Stepping Into the Shade. He's also an author, music executive, and influencer. Thanks, June, for joining us today.
1: Catherine, thank you for having me. How are you doing today?
0: Not so bad. And now that you're here, I know we're going to have a grand old time. Uh, June, you've worked in these Connecticut farms yourself. You have a lot of personal experiences. And you also describe this as a kind of rite of passage. Can you share with us what that experience has been like?
1: Absolutely. Once again, thank you for having me. This project, Stepping Into the Shade, has been a blessing in so many different ways. When I was approached by both uh, Brian Day and Kristen Morgan from Eastern Connecticut State University regarding this project, I was very intrigued at first. And then when they got into the crux of everything in terms of what this story meant for Connecticut as it relates to the tobacco industry and all the stories surrounding it, it hit home because one of the focuses is migrant workers coming from Jamaica to work on the tobacco farms in Hartford. The reason why it hit home for me, Catherine, was my grandfather is an immigrant who migrated from Jamaica to Connecticut to pick apples. My father and my mom's friends uh, also came here. They also migrated from Jamaica uh, in their late teens. And because this is my culture, you know, being uh, uh, Jamaican-American, for lack of a better uh, term, this story was near and dear to my heart. And for me, it's sort of a love story, Catherine, to see that these people came over from their native land to bring their food, their music, their entertainment, their love for community and set up shop here and, and make the best of it all while working on these farms and building these companies on their back.
0: Well, I love that you described that experience as a love story. I don't feel like we often hear that when we're talking about stories of migration and immigration and, and working in these fields. You know, what about your own story? You mentioned it a little bit, and Ancestry, did you discover through the process of filming and, and storytelling?
1: Well, the, the great thing is, My rite of passage in middle school uh, over the summer, once you get your working papers, is picking tobacco. You would either have a paper route or you would pick tobacco. So for two summers, I stood at the top of my street waiting for the yellow bus to come pick me and my friends up to go to Brown's Harvest in Pequonic, which is right outside of Windsor, to pick tobacco, go into the fields and pick tobacco. So when I... When I'm putting the pieces together with the story, I'm like, man, I, I picked it back. I worked on these same farms that we are talking about. And to be able to go into these fields and see the men that are working and remember those hot days. And some sometimes there were rainy days. You know, there would be days, Catherine, where you, you wouldn't go picking because it was raining, but there were some days where you were in the rain, you were in the elements and you were still having fun as a kid, but not really realizing uh that these people come over here and they break their backs, they're here 10, 12 hours a day, uh, barely having a lunch, sweating, in the name of just making money to provide for their families, making money to bring their families over to the United States for a better living. So for me, I found out about what these men were doing, what these women were doing, how far this, you know, was reaching. Like it was outside of Connecticut, and we, we were hearing stories from Women in Pittsburgh were hearing stories, people from Puerto Rico and Jamaica talking about their migration here, what it took, what they endured. And it has been such an eye opener because we talk about learning each other's history, but the stories that we are uncovering uh, every time we film, I haven't read any of these things in our history books and talking to my parents, there are stories that I've told them and... They've been Jamaican all of my life, Catherine, and they haven't heard half of these stories. So it's very important as we dive in and and for those who are out there who have had relatives or families and friends who've been on these farms, share these stories because we want to tell these stories so all of us can be educated and excited about this one plant that allows people to segregate and have great conversation. And it's a way of life now that's been taken uh, the world by storm, globally, actually. You know, men and women smoke cigars now. It's it's not just uh, a old white man's pastime.
0: Well, thanks for the reminder to remind me, to remind our listeners that if you have a connection to Connecticut Shade Tobacco Farms, we definitely want to hear from you. Please feel free to give us a call at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, June, you know, you talk about, remembering those images, working in these farms, you know, it's raining, it's sunny, but you're, as a kid, you're kind of having a fun time with it. But as an adult, you're realizing the implications behind that. How did that in- inform you when you started this process? And and what inspired you to want to tell this story?
1: I'll start and reverse engineer this. I, I wanted to do this because, one, it was part of my history, it was a part of my culture. And as I dove into... Some of the books like Soldiers of Our Soil and speaking with Brian and Kristen, realizing that the individuals that we needed to speak to, to hear more about the history, these were family friends. These were relatives. These were mentors of my parents. These were friends and peers of my grandparents. So I had direct connection with probably 98% of the people that were in the book. So for me, it was, hey. Not only do I love the story, I can reach out to these people directly and we can speak to them. And we've had so much success. And within that success, we've had people that said, hey, you need to talk to this person or you need to talk to Mrs. So-and-so. And And the story is unfolding. So the inspiration was if I can connect these dots and I could tell these stories, what kind of impact will I have on my community as West Indians who worked on these farms who contributed to the community. What kind of impact will I have on future generations and letting people know, like, it's not a it's not a bad profession. It's not a bad thing to come and work on these farms because you are contributing to a greater good. But to understand that when they came over here, Catherine, they were paid less than minimum wage. They weren't, there was no living wage for them. We've heard stories of, you know, men not even having, um, pension because they've been working on the farms all these years. They, uh, Medical, you know, what they were getting, you know, cents on the dollar working. These stories are, it's amazing that they've ever endured. That's why this is a love story because it is a labor of love at the end of the day. And to be able to speak highly of it, even when all those things are going on and then having to battle, or I would say, navigate racism and segregation, all the things that came forward as a West Indian, as uh, those who came over from Puerto Rico, trying to navigate the waters here while the black Americans were trying to navigate it. You start to see that there's there's some similarities, but there's also some disparities in these stories.
0: Well, June, you describe this experience as as a love story, and as we all, I think, can understand and resonate with when we talk about stories of love. This can be very complicated, and there's a lot going on. So, can you paint us a picture of what it was like um, at, for yourself or for others? You know, working in these farms were they, I don't want to call it that, was it a good experience, but the experience may not necessarily be bad.
1: No, f- for a young man such as myself in middle school, it was a great experience that taught us responsibility. It taught us hard work. And as a kid, this is 1987, 88, right? That it was great money. At the end of the week, we'd probably come home with $400. But for the adult male and female working on that farm, and you're talking about maybe 50 cents, a day when they in the early fifties when they started coming sixties right and then you bumped that up a little bit they're barely taking home as an adult you taking home four hundred dollars sounds crazy, right? Because you have all these responsibilities. I had no responsibilities, but to it I call it a labor of love and a love story because you can only love it because you are making maybe a better wage than you were where you came from. But you're still working hard to bring your family, your children to this country for a better living, for better opportunities. So you have to think about that, Catherine. You come here, but you're not you're not looked at as an equal. You're getting paid less than minimum wage. You don't have the opportunities that white people have. And they're trying to at every turn discourage you from moving to certain communities. So you have all these things. So it has to be a labor of love. It has to be some type of love to be here to say, "I'm going to take all of what I've made and make something out of nothing." That's why it's important to tell these stories, especially from the beginning. You know, we start from World War II when Hitler was getting ready to bomb the first ship that came over from Jamaica. These are stories that a lot of a lot of us as Americans haven't heard, and Jamaicans haven't even heard these stories. So it's super important to tell these stories and, and of migration and everything that came with having to just be here and be seen and be treated fairly.
0: Well, which is why we are having this conversation today and just wanna let our listeners know that we've been talking about the economics of of these uh, workers. We will hear a bit more from Yukon scholar, Jason Chang, about the economics of this industry. And, and June, I do wanna to ask too, you, with so many different people coming into into this industry from different places, can you share with us a little bit about how it drove diversity into Connecticut?
1: Well, the diversity happened based on the War and Food Administration going out to these, these uh, countries, these islands, to actually bring work over. So you have the Jamaicans, you have the Puerto Ricans that come in. Uh, You have blacks that are here, they're working on the farms. So there's some diversity in terms of coming from different islands or parts of the country, those who actually came up from the South, uh, just to get away from, you know, past the Bible Belt that come up here, because the South was, it's a different way of living. When we talk about the MLK story in this series, we talk about letters that he wrote to his mom And him expressing that he felt like he was living in God's country because it was so different than being down south. Powerful, powerful things that tug on your heart, you know, and saying, Man, is was it really that bad? Like, what was that great migration like? Right? Some people felt like the great migration was one thing, but as you get into the crux of the story, you realize, oh, they came up here for a lot of different reasons.
0: And we'll definitely be hearing more about that after we come back. And You've been listening to June Archer, who will continue to be tugging our hearts into the next segment. We'll hear from the team also that he's working with at Eastern Connecticut State University after this break. And I want to ask, what ties do you have to the tobacco industry where we live? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
2: Support for this podcast
3: comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashanker, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more
4: found helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity.
3: For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umeshankar has advice on the first most important step.
4: I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis.
3: To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Joining me now to discuss Stepping Into the Shade, which is a forthcoming docuseries all about the shade tobacco industry where we live, is Brian Day. He's an assistant professor of filmmaking at Eastern Connecticut State University, and Kristen Morgan, who is an associate professor of theater and new media studies at Eastern Connecticut State University as well. Thank you, both of you, for joining us today. Thank
3: Thank you you for having us.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Catherine. They're also both producers and directors of Stepping Into the Shade. And still with us is June Archer, who's the host and producer of the docu series, also an author and music executive. Thanks, June, for being with us. And just to remind you that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Bryant, want to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how this all came together?
3: Actually, um, it came from a project Kristen was working on. So she was working. um, I'll probably let her explain more about that. They brought me in on a different project as a filmmaker um, to help them create a project they were working on that was meant for the stage. That was about Martin Luther King um, in the tobacco fields. And um, that kind of inspired an exploration into how dynamic uh, the tobacco industry was in Connecticut and who had worked in the fields, And so that was a launching pad into exploring um, how the tobacco industry brought this change to Connecticut and the greater world, you know, through civil rights and uh, the activities. And we started to learn about people that came and worked on the fields, but then went on and did great things in different parts of the country and around the world.
0: Kristen, would you like to jump in and share how it started from your perspective?
4: Sure. Um, so my colleague here at Easter and Alicia Bright-Holland and I have created a couple of devised projects um, that look at different communities, um, a lot of uh, immigrant experiences here in Connecticut, and then we created shows about them. So um, back in 2017, we created a show called Thread City, which focused on the um, immigrant populations that join local residents to make the American Thread Company mills here in Willimantic um, such a vibrant presence in New England. Um, while we were working on that project, our colleague here at Eastern, Dr. Stacy Close, um, historian, came and gave our students a, um, a talk about uh, Black Connecticut. And uh, he spoke a lot about the Great Migration. And one of the stories he touched on was that Dr. King had worked tobacco to pay for his tuition at Morehouse University. And we thought that was fascinating. And we were like, let's stick a pin in that and we'll come back to it later. So several years later, we came back to this project called Cultivating Dignity, and we were working on it in the same way as Thread City, devising with students and um, community members, um, historians here at Eastern and at UConn. And then uh, the pandemic hit. And so our plans for a stage play were kind of scrapped. And we turned to um, our colleague, Brian, who was new here at the time, and we said, can you help us make this into a film? And that's what we did. And then after that film was completed, uh, cultivating dignity, Brian and I felt like there was just a lot more to the story um, that could be told. So we decided to um, make a series out of it, and that's where we are today. And June, can you talk
0: to us about how you approach these interviews? You know, what surprised you about how much people were willing to share?
1: What we did was sort of magical, and I don't know. I think we. I set the stage early, and we've been looking back at interviews and seeing that just leading with humanity, Catherine, has been the common denominator that at some point during the interviews, we are either holding hands with, you know, uh, our guest, we are hugging, there's some type of contact and connection and with everything that's been going on over the past couple of years, it was really important to figure out how we were going to shoot this. we were being very, very careful uh, during, you know, the months where COVID was ramping up, but still being able to maintain this human connection. And that is the common thread that is woven through all of these interviews is really just sitting down, leading with humanity and getting real authentic stories from those who want to share and as we dive in and and it gets personal and very personable uh we find that people want to share they're excited they're happy and at the end there is there's been i can't even tell you catherine I, i don't think there's one interview that hasn't ended with an embrace of some sort and it's only because uh we have an amazing crew uh the students from from uh eastern connecticut state university um, handpicked by Kristen and Brian, have been amazing, and they just make it a a, a set that is just so easy for myself and for our guests. So it's just leading with hum- humanity.
0: Well, speaking of leading with humanity and sharing, we're going to have Deborah from East Hamden who will like to share her story. Deborah, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Yes, go for it.
5: Okay. My name is Deborah. I worked in tobacco starting in 1964 when I was 14 years old. And the, um, the farm that I worked at was in East Windsor, Connecticut. It's a small farm comparatively. And a lot of the kids from my town, I mean, that's just what we did. We, we worked in tobacco, and uh, we worked among migrant. Puerto Rican people who came, and we—I mean, it was—it was really hard work, and I still have some scars from that. But it was fun, and it was a lesson in so many things. Um, the Puerto Ricans who did come to work on the farms were really wonderful people, and what an example of hard work they were! I mean, they really worked. We were just kids, and, you know, we didn't understand the culture and, and you know, the way that they worked. We were sort of working and fooling around at the same time. But they worked very hard. And when they saw, in my experience personally, uh, when they saw me working as skinny little kid, sweating and having a hard time with the heat Um, and finishing my row, because we worked on rows and we tied the plants to the top of the nets and stuff. They would give me credit for some of the rows that they did because it was piecework. So although I made 75 cents an hour, if one of those men gave me a couple of rows, I was making more than a dollar an hour. And what a sacrifice it was for them. And I knew it was nice, but I didn't realize until later, you know, that it was a sacrifice for them. I just thought they were being nice. At the same time, they were kept separate from us. They were not supposed to talk to us. Um, it was kind of a plantation culture. Not, not even kind of. It was. They lived separately in these um I don't know if I should call them shacks, but they were, you know, seasonal buildings, I guess. Um, and they were not supposed to mix with the town folk. Um, and if they talked to the girls, which, you know, they would get in trouble and sometimes they would uh, be sent back to Puerto Rico. So it was kind of an iffy thing because, you know, it was wonderful working with them because they would sing the songs and they would speak Spanish and and we as kids kind of picked up some of that Spanish. More than I ever picked up in school. Um because I you know, we were immersed in it. But um it was something that I always carry with me. It taught me how to work. I loved it. Um it, it was just an amazing experience. And, um, I know you're, um, the creator of the docu-series, I forgot his name, and that's, I'm sorry about that, but, um, he talks about people coming from Jamaica and Hartford, and we had some of, some people coming from Hartford and Jamaica. But in the little farm that I worked in, it was
0: mostly Puerto Ricans. I want to thank Deborah for sharing her story. Uh, June, it sounds like there's a lot of echoes with what Deborah has to share. Um, do you have any response to her story?
1: No, it her story and Deborah, thank you so much for sharing. Is <laughs> it's it's sad because when you talk about what they sacrifice, and and you know she shared how kind ah uh, they were to to give her credit for their roles. You do realize that uh one of the stories that was kind of a hard pill to swallow is we spoke to the Pittsburgh girls, and the Pittsburgh girls said that they experienced the same thing as Deborah. Like, don't don't fraternize with the locals. And then specifically we're told, don't talk to the PRs. And as we got into the interview, I, I backtracked a little bit because I wanted to get confirmation as to what it was so I wanted the the viewer and to to get this in these moments and I said who were the PRs in my head I knew what they were but I, I I needed us to get that on on film so that the viewer can see what was going on or at least feel what was going on back then they said the, the Puerto Ricans but when they said that Catherine they talked about the experience same experience that Deb Deborah just shared with us and they were saying how handsome and how nice they were. And and you can see on camera the admiration that these white women had for these Puerto Rican men. And to me, it's, it's so beautiful because it just says, man, we can live together despite whether we're black, brown, Hispanic, Jamaican, polka dot, doesn't matter. But just the fact that there were people that were telling these young people not to deal with a certain, seg, you know, segment of the population. It was just crazy, heartbreaking.
0: Well, continuing the essence of sharing is Mark from Windsor, who has also had experience working in tobacco fields. Mark, are you there? Oh, our Mark may not be there, but that's okay. I just want to continue really quick with um, Brian. You know, you were talking about your experience working on this show. Were there's Was there anything that jumped out to you, you know, Something new that you weren't experiencing?
3: You know, I think the process of going in to meet somebody we haven't met before in person, we may have pre interviewed them, um, and going to a location we may not be familiar with, and then figuring out a way to have this um, really fluid interaction between June and this guest in, in an environment neither may be familiar with, um, and then figuring out a way to make It look good on camera and that the audio sounds good um it's just a a creative challenge it's always fun it's always exciting and i think the team um comes out of every production day exhausted in the best way meaning that we just had the best time um almost like kids at a playground just having such fun creating this content and then learning um so i think the excitement about what we're learning and the emotional experience that we're having as we're engaging with these people. It's just, it's um, it's priceless.
0: We're going to try to get Mark from Windsor back. Mark, are you there? Yes, I am. Yeah, go for it.
3: Um, Well, I spent about six summers working on tobacco in Broadbrook, Connecticut, which was the town I grew up in. And it's uh, to kind of echo what Deborah said, it's what kids did. Uh, There were no, you know, this is in the 60s. There were very few fast food places or Discount store, you know, things where kids could get jobs. And you could start working on tobacco when you were 14, even though they limited the hours. Um, and um, the
5: boys worked in the fields. Oops.
0: Oh, did we just lose Mark again? Well, June, you kind of heard a little bit of what Mark was sharing earlier, and it sounds like there's a lot of uh, echoes with, between everyone's experiences. Can you uh, talk about what you uh, think about what Mark just shared?
3: Well what
1: Mark shared uh briefly is is right on point. When you as a young person, uh getting a job over the summer, it's pretty exciting because you're you going with your peers, right? And and the lessons that were learned is just really hard work, right? Dedicating yourself, applying yourself, but also how you get along with others. There were definitely there were challenges in terms of language, right? Uh Deborah mentioned it, Mark mentioned it. You know, speaking Spanish or trying to understand what the Jamaicans were saying as they were speaking their Patois, right? So you have this, here's what's beautiful. You have these language barriers, but you have an opportunity for almost two and a half months to work with a diverse group of people to learn something different about each other's cultures, each other's way of life, the way they talk, the the, the way they congregate. And we hear about stories, especially from the Jamaicans of going to play cricket in Keeney Park and setting up all of their social clubs, right? On Main Street or or Blue Hills Avenue. There's such beauty in these stories, Catherine, that it's it's a hard pill to swallow to know that it's, it's going to take, and we're very proud of it, take a documentary series such as Stepping Into the Shade to share these stories, to say that we have so much more in common than we have not in common and how beautiful that is.
0: Well, and another beautiful moment was we talked about how Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has had experience working on these farms here in Connecticut and what a big impression it made on him. We want to take a quick listen to an interview that he's done with Hartford area journalist Lou Brown who contextualizes uh, Dr. King's descriptions of Connecticut at the time. Let's take a listen.
6: The tobacco growers would go south to recruit for some employment. They would specifically go to the colleges, historical black colleges, to get some employment. That's how MLK ended up here. But they, when they came here, they were shepherd. They didn't come to like Bellevue Square, Public Housing Development where. They were shepherd down certain areas. Get down the bus, certain areas.
1: Well he makes mention in one of the letters to his mom that he felt like he was in God's country, right? And yeah. I found that to be very poetic, but what does that line mean to you when he says he was
6: in God's country? Well, when you compare the situation in the South to Hartford, there wasn't as strangling. It wasn't as omniscient because the fact you could breathe a little easier but our survival things were and like for instance my father we had a thing he said uh, coming from Denmark South Carolina when I don't spit on the sidewalk here in Hartford he brought it to Hartford you know what that meant don't give the ignorance of some people or the system a reason to bust you don't spit on the sidewalk
0: so, June, you mentioned earlier, too, his description that he felt like he was in God's country here in Connecticut. You know, why was this exchange so critical in contextualizing his words?
1: When you come from the South and what we've learned, you realize as Northerners, we probably did not understand how downtrodden the Black American was from down South. And it's not that the North did not experience any type of racism. We know that there was racism and segregation, but not as strenuous as it was down South. So when he says he's in God's country, you know, he was able to go places that he wouldn't been, have been able to go to when he was down South. There were two gentlemen we hear about a story. Uh, a gentleman tells us in the uh, tobacco museum of two black men who he told to get in his truck after they actually loaded the truck up and they said to him as he was getting ready to enter the vehicle, why aren't the both of you in the truck? And their response was, well, we're not supposed to. We we if down south, if we took the audacity of getting in the cab of the truck, we would be killed. We could be hung. We could be beaten. So when you hear about these stories, you're like, man, and this is not so long ago, Catherine, let's, let's be clear. We're, we're not talking about a hundred years ago. We're talking about less than 50 years ago, And right? Th- this is, it's crazy to think that the, and not to get off the subject, but there are things that just haven't changed. You know, so when he talks about God's country, I thought it was beautiful because it gave me a sense of pride that the north was a little bit better because I am a northerner. I'm from the New England area, but there were still issues that we still have yet to conquer. Well,
0: it's not really off the subject since everything is so connected. June, I do want to ask Brian, you know, what are your thoughts about how this speaks to the larger mission of this series?
3: You know, I think uh, it speaks to our goal with this series as, as it's been coming together is to show how the farms had an impact on these individuals It gave them an opportunity and that opportunity allowed the individuals to uh, have a broader impact on on society. And Martin Luther King is probably the most prominent one that we've heard, but we've heard a lot of stories of others that have come up and worked on the farms and gone off and helped desegregate the schools in Connecticut. Uh, We've spoken to the son of a man who was Martin Luther King's chaperone up here um, and was instrumental in, in desegregating the schools in Hartford. And here's a man who's not nearly as well known as Martin Luther King, but had, you know, an equally important impact on culture and society. So I think we're seeing this uh, kind of impact. You can't. I don't think you could say the farms directly impacted this individual to make those behaviors, but there is this common connection that the farms provided opportunities to people who then went on and had a, a great impact on society
0: just want to remind listeners that you can learn more at SteppingIntoTheShade.com. You've been listening to Brian Day, who's the Assistant Professor of Filmmaking at Eastern Connecticut State University, and Kristen Morgan, who's the Associate Professor of Theater and New Media Studies at the same school, who will be uh, staying with us. And coming up next, we'll be hearing from Jason Chang, who's an Associate Professor of History at UConn, who will be talking with us about the economics of the tobacco industry. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
5: we
2: tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special
3: series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten.
2: Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of
3: Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture.
5: Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut, sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and MedSpa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org Pepin.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Uh, We've been talking about the shea tobacco industry here in Connecticut, and there's a new docuseries focused on how the industry shaped the civil rights movement and diversity where we live. The docuseries is called Stepping Into the Shade. And here with us to continue the conversation is Jason Chang. He's an associate professor of history and director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn. Thanks so much for joining us today jason
2: hi catherine thank you
0: we also still have the producers and director of the series on the line june archer brian day and kristen morgan they're still hoping to hear from you this hour so give us a call at 888-720-9677 or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live jason you've been with us and listening along this whole hour you know before we get into your research would love to hear any thoughts you have in terms of what you've been hearing so far
2: hmm yeah it's it's so much admiration for June Brian and Kristen the expert you know storytellers and you know really I feel like they're kind of caretakers of of our shared history and you know this idea that there's a kind of um you know it feels like a Renaissance in local history and that that's a really you know really vital part of a kind of Civic revitalization, you know and the way that, we build the civil rights movement of the 21st century. As we're reflecting back on, you know, Martin Luther King's history, you know, really how does that, how does, you know, uh, really diving into this history inspire us to tackle our own challenges.
0: And did it change your mind or give you a new perspective, you know, hearing from June, Brian, and Kristen, and as well as the callers who called in to share their experiences?
2: Yeah, you know, I think it for me it it, it I think people come to a uh, um, a realization, you know, that that everyone knows a little bit about tobacco history, but we don't know the whole story. And I think you know, once we start sharing those stories, that kind of aha moment happens, and the bigger kind of context and picture starts to fill out, and then we begin to feel perhaps more connected to each other and to etiquette and this place that we call home uh, because of you know sharing those things that we kind of know a little bit about everyone knows what the tobacco sheds look like everyone maybe has had some experience or knows someone who's worked in the fields uh, but then to really have it woven together as a coherent story is really powerful.
0: And we know that your colleague Fiona Verno has also done a lot of work on this subject. You know, what do we know about the scale of tobacco farming in Connecticut over time? You know, when was the peak?
2: Yeah, so t- tobacco farming, you know, h- h- tobacco has been a staple crop in Connecticut since the colonial period. Uh, but it, this this particular form, the shade grown tobacco, really begins at the turn of the 20th century, 1900s. And uh, and this is really something that, you know, happens as a result of not just the ingenuity and and determination of Connecticut growers, but a larger kind of pattern in which there's, you know, there's a context for the success of shade grown tobacco. And that is that the u s. was also engaged in an imperial war to uh, to gather new territories which happened to be tobacco market places like Puerto Rico and the Philippines. So in some ways, the the ability for tobacco farmers to succeed in Connecticut depended upon the suppression of markets in Puerto Rico and the Philippines. And that allowed for this, this really dramatic growth through the, over the, each decade from the From, you know, from the 1910s, uh, uh, you know, you could see doubling of kind of acreage and expansion of of the industry up until the uh, 1950s and 60s, which we see the peak.
0: Well, I think you spoke about exactly what you just said in the series about the massive economic impact this industry has had in Connecticut. You know, what can you tell us about that and how does that compare to today?
2: Mm. Yeah. So, you know, with the with the doubling of acreage over time, what that does is it creates ever greater demands for this very specialized, like Deborah was saying, the expertise of of the tobacco workers. It requires this kind of the, the scale of labor to happen, but it also is a temporary form of labor. So it creates these really unique conditions where you have um where you have you know really finite needs uh in in space and time but then you also have growers and uh and other folks in the community that they only want labor. They don't want neighbors. And to use the words of of uh, uh, uh Vijay Prashad um that the those those conditions create the need for these temporary, you know, kinds of communities. And um, and then one of the ways that that really you know, challenges a community is then uh, is then there are, you know, as as June was pointing out, there are disparities The in a, the 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 ways that wage differentials really prevent those folks from uh, from experiencing uh, um, uh, prosperity. And so when we see the expansion of the agricultural industry like that, we also see the expansion of a, of a population that isn't able to meet its own needs. and uh, and so that really, you know, creates a a disparity, one that we have to understand as historically being produced. but that was a major feature of, of uh, the local economy. There were at one point there was even tobacco festivals and parades that would go through Hartford uh, that would draw people from all over the country to celebrate, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Connecticut grown tobacco and and the 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 world-class cigars that were, that were grown here.
0: Well, I think it was amazing that there were festivals and celebrations of this industry that, you know, some of us are familiar with and some of us may not be. And we we talked about this a little bit earlier, that part of the mission of this docuseries is to explore how these farms really shaped diversity in Connecticut. And, and June has talked about it a little bit earlier. You know, how would you describe that from what you have seen?
2: Mm, it, yeah, in, and I think the what really drew me to this work was not any particular, you know, interest in, in really understanding uh, uh, tobacco per se. But I remember when the tobacco sheds near the airport near Bradley were being torn down uh, to make way for the Amazon uh, uh, distribution center. Um, I was also reading Ocean Vuong's book On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous. He's a a, a Vietnamese American refugee who grew up in Hartford. Who you know wrote this book, this novel about his life, and and like a third of the novel takes place in in Connecticut tobacco uh, fields. And so you know this idea of the Connecticut field, you know t- Connecticut tobacco as a rite of passage was even replicated in Asian American literature. And that really—that uh, was the first time where I ever thought of Connecticut as a as an Asian American space, and that it had this this deeper kind of history. And so when I saw the sheds being torn down, it made me think: What kinds of history are we losing uh, when the landscape changes like that? And um, and that made me ever more curious and the ways that different populations were involved in uh, in tobacco agriculture really helped me to understand the composition of our communities uh the ways that they've changed and evolved over time really map so closely with uh with the trends and patterns in agri- in tobacco agriculture in Connecticut so this was a great opportunity to work with Fiona um who was also looking at neighborhood change in northern Hartford and how did you know black and, and Puerto Rican and Jamaican communities uh really respond to the the transformation of, of both economic opportunities as well as agricultural change?
0: Well I think what you just said really it connects with what June was saying earlier, too, where everything is very much interconnected. And I find it to be extremely fascinating to be able to learn about that space from something like the tobacco industry. we got about two minutes left, but I would love you to share about, you know, why do you think it's important for us to understand this part of history?
2: Mm. It, it, yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think it's something that really allows for us to paint a a, a more inclusive picture of the past that is more accurate. And when we have those kinds of stories that we hold and it builds a historical imagination about what, who belongs in Connecticut. And when we're able to share those stories and know them and recognize them, then I think that that really creates another kind of, uh, you know, shared, you know, sense of of belonging and that, that, that when we, when we are faced with, uh, with challenges that require us to advocate for one another, to show solidarity and to empathize with one another, we can lean on these histories of shared experiences.
0: You've been listening to Jason Oliver Chang, who is the Associate Professor of History and Director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute at UConn. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jason.
2: Oh, thank you, it's a pleasure.
0: I just want to remind listeners that you can learn more about Stepping Into the Shade at steppingintotheshade.com. You've also been hearing from June Archer, Brian Day, and Kristen Morgan, who are all working on the docu series Stepping Into the Shade. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app, and thank you so much for listening.